I want you all to know that I am grateful for your acceptance after my blunders. It is pleasing to once again have friends. You, Quill, are my friend. Thanks. This dumb tree, he is my friend. Mm. The adult contents and spoilers are also my friend. Oh, you must stop! And now, binge mode Marvel. I look around at us. You know what I see? Losers. I mean, like, folks who have lost stuff. And we have, man, we have, all of us. Our homes. Our families. Normal lives. And usually life takes more than it gives, but not today. Today it's given us something. It has given us a chance. To do what? To give a shit. Welcome to We Are Groot. Yes. Binge Mode Marvel, proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Allie Rubin, Editor-in-Chief of TheRinger.com. It's a great website. Oh, what a great <laughs> website! <laughs> Joining me today, now that he's finished winning his dance-off against Ronan the Accuser, it's your favorite Star-Lord, Jason Concepcion. Mal? Listen to those words. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier because it's time for Binge Mode Marvel, where we're exploring the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Infinity Saga and the comic book lore that inspired it as phase four of the MCU nears. Please make the journey to Morag with us by following this podcast on Spotify or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Give us the five star ratings or we'll take away your Walkman. If you're looking to catch up on our prior seasons or listen to them again, you can find our entire archive, Binge Mode Game of Thrones, Binge Mode Harry Potter, Binge Mode Star Wars, and Binge Mode Weekly for free exclusively on Spotify. Also, go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, and which is an excellent place to discuss your favorite old mixtapes. And don't forget to head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our Binge Mode merch, proven to hold up if you're channeling the Power Stone. As long as you're holding numerous people's hands while you're trying that. Yeah. Last time on Binge Mode Marvel, we booted up our record player to discuss Captain America the Winter Soldier. And today, we're diving deep. Deep! Into 2014's Guardians of the Galaxy. Woo! Fun one. As always here on Binge Mode, spoiler warning. We will be going deep on details from this film, all three phases of the MCU to date, and the wider Marvel canon. So secure the orb. Let the collector know we're coming because it's time to head to nowhere right after this. Mal, now I'm standing. Y'all happy? We're all standing up now. Bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. May as well go over the plot points while we're up. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in Guardians of the Galaxy by opening the Bifrost and accessing the knowledge of the Nine Realms. I'd just like the record to state that I'm comfortably seated, and now I'm ready to proceed. Earth! 1988. 
young Peter Quill deals with his mother's illness by losing himself in his Walkman. In her last moments before she dies, Peter's mother gifts him a final present. He'll open it decades later. Here, in the moment he runs from the room in tears, despondent, unwilling to accept what's happened. At which point, he is promptly snatched up by Ravagers. I hate when that happens. I hate it when that happens. On Morag, the present, Peter Quill, now an intergalactic dude bro and treasure hunter (laughs) slash pirate, is on the hunt for an artifact, an orb that unbeknownst to him is the fabled Power Stone, Mm. one of the six Infinity Gems. He scans the planet for images of its former civilization, then presses play on his mixtape. As soon as Quill has the orb in hand, he's ambushed by Korath, a Kree. Korath intends to take Quill to be interrogated by Ronan the Accuser, a Kree extremist bent on vengeance against the planet Xandar. But Quill escapes. Later, he gets a call from old Yandu, the leader of a crew of Ravagers. Quill ostensibly works for, and the alien who took Quill from Earth years ago, and as he's happy to mention, didn't need him. How about some fucking gratitude, Peter? Yandu is pissed because he's on Morag and hey, uh, there's no orb. Quill has broken the Ravager code of honor among thieves. On the Kree warship, the Dark Aster, Ronan the Accuser takes a sponge bath and speechifies to a captured uh, officer of the Nova Corps. Uh, then he hits him in the head with his hammer. Hammer the hammer! God, Korath is strong. Korath arrives to brief Ronan on the loss of the orb. Apparently, Quill is to meet his fence, who is named, helpfully, the Broker. Ronan needs the orb. He made a deal with Thanos, the orb, in exchange for the destruction of Xandar. Gamora and Nebula, Thanos' daughters, argue about who gets to go to Xandar to retrieve the orb. And Gamora gets the job. And so begins Nebula's saga of disappointment on Xandar. Home of the Nova Corps. Rocket Raccoon and his aide-de-camp Groot accept a bounty to capture Quill. Star-Lord, ever heard of him? Like, no, literally, have you ever heard of him? His name is Star-Lord. He wants to know if you've heard of him. Attempts to deliver the orb to the broker. But as soon as he mentions Ronin, the broker panics, kicks Quill out of the shop. Notable. Gamora, waiting for him outside, grabs the orb, runs, the two fight. (laughs) Delightful sequence ensues. And the Donnybrook soon comes to involve Rocket and Groot. When the smoke clears, they are all arrested, shipped off to the kiln. The prison filled with aliens who have suffered at the hands of Ronan is an especially unwelcome place for Gamora. One of those sufferers is Drax the Destroyer. Ronan wiped out Drax's family. Quill manages to talk Drax down, and Gamora tells the assembled group that she intends to stop Thanos from acquiring the orb. Quill, Gamora, Rocket, Groot, and Drax band together to escape. Meanwhile, Thanos calls Ronan to Sanctuary to answer for the loss of the orb. Ronan insists that Gamora has betrayed her father. He is read the scripts for future MCU films and knows that this is true. Thanos says that the deal is still on 
as long as Ronan arrives with the orb, you get my MacGuffin, my guy, and we can keep doing this thing. The escape is messy, but effective. The new team reclaims their belongings, including the orb and Quill's Walkman and escape in the Milano Quill ship. The five immediately begin bickering and Quill mentions that the inside of his ship is covered with his ejaculate. That's just a weird thing to mention. Proud to share this. He didn't, that didn't need to come up. It lights up like a Jackson Pollock painting, Jason. How about a little Clorox wipe action, my guy? He's never cleaned that Or like grab a sock? It's never been cleaned. Contain things a little bit? Something? It's never been cleaned. Yandu visits the broker. He wants to know what the orb is, why people want it, who might buy it. After some tough questioning, the broker admits that the orb's buyer is uh, the collector. You will, of course, remember him from the Dark World stinger. Gotta mention Dark World whenever we can. You know, it's binge mode. The collector, currently living large in his museum on nowhere. The massive severed head of a celestial stop by if you'd like to mine some brainstem fluid. At long last, they are taken to the collector and he is a very weird guy. He tries to buy the rights to Groot's carcass. And when they show the orb... Just to be clear, super strange thing to say to someone. Not cool. When they show him the orb, he fucking loses it. He explains that it is indeed an infinity stone, powerful beyond imagination. And then in a troubling scene that hints at deeper, more systemic problems with the way the collector runs his organization, Karina, apparently a person that he is enslaved, sees her opportunity for revenge, grabs the power stone thinking she's going to use it as a weapon and causes an explosion that kills her and destroys the collector's museum. Not good. Yikes. Have to say, (laughs) a positively Odin-esque bit of exposition on the Infinity Stone front from the collector Uh, before the explosion, however. (laughs) It was really great stuff. And he didn't need a nap after. He does the whole, he did the whole thing. It lets you know all about it. (laughs) Our friends, of course, flee. Gamora wants to return the stone to the Nova Corps. Quill wants to sell it, but a slight complication. Ronan has arrived because Drax drunk dialed him. What the fuck, Drax? Chill out. Tough look for our guy Drax here. At the very same moment, Yandu's Ravagers show up. You know, the galaxy, it's not that big, really. It's not that big. And there's no safer place than nowhere. In the wild scrum that follows, Drax is nearly killed by Ronan. Groot will have to stab him with a sharp finger branch to loose the fluid from his lungs. (gasps) Quill saves Gamora's life Super heroic. He can't wait to tell you all about it. But to do so, he had to contact Yandu. Nebula delivers the orb to Ronan, who discovers that... What? Yes, it is Infinity (laughs) Stone, and guess what? Why do I even need Thanos then? Yes, right. He tells the Mad Titan, guess what? Fuck off. One, two, after I'm done destroying Xandar, you're next. 
<laughs> Meanwhile, our heroes are split up. Yandu holds Quill and Gamora prisoner, and they in turn attempt to convince him that he should actually help them stop Ronan and Thanos. Back on Nowhere, Drax and Groot convince Rocket, similarly, that they all need to go rescue Quill and Gamora. Our pals are reunited. When Rocket, Drax, and Groot fly to Yondu's ship, the newly formed Guardians of Xandar, soon to be Guardians of the Galaxy, come up with an actual plan, or at least 12% of a plan, debrief Yondu's Ravagers. Calls for boarding the Dark Aster. Okay. Taking out the Sakaran warriors inside. Okay, I've read Planet Hulk. I'm concerned. Not, not, not a big deal. I have some notes already. And then using Rocket's Hadron Enforcer. The guy loves to whip up a bomb from Quill's so ejaculate-covered ship parts. Disgusting. To snuff out Ronan. Easy. They were like 12 feet away from Ronan when they shot it at him. It's like, you know how I know it, it won't work? Because you're if you can be within two miles of it and it won't kill you, then it won't kill Ronan. I'm sorry. To be it fair. It doesn't go. Yeah. Let me just say, in their defense, at least it exploded. Like it didn't just it hit did. his chest and fall to the ground like the ex-wife, you know? Listen, Rocket. Rocket's still one step ahead of Justin Hammer. Rocket doesn't understand the billions, even trillions to be made in the arms <laughs> game back on Earth. He'd be, the, he'd be the biggest name in armaments if he decided to do it on Earth, on Terra, as they call it in the galaxy. Of course, it doesn't go quite that easily, but our friends and their allies improvise. And in the end, it requires a heroic sacrifice from the Nova Corps and the Ravagers Groot getting chopped down to a twig and a song and dance number from the assembled guardians, but they do manage to wield the power stone shockingly against Ronan and sucker Yondu into flying off with a dummy orb. <sighs> Steve, give us some PD wells. Give us some I don't feel so goods for OG Groot. I don't feel so good. And oh, for, man. let's be honest, legions of dead on Xandar. Let's go, let's play it a few times here. In the Annihilation storyline that this pulls from, mm -hmm. Xandar is completely wiped out. So this is like comparatively fine oh. compared to the absolute desolation in the opening pages of Annihilation where the Nova Corps is completely wiped out except for one guy and the entire city and planet is turned into like a ash-strewn waste. Jeez. You hear that, Xandar? Shake it off. You heard it from Jason. <laughs> Shake it off, guys. I mean, it was tough. The Nova Corps took heavy casualties, but you guys made it. Yes, that you're right. Glenn Close made it to utter a third and final line in this film. <laughs> You don't hear her <laughs> complaining about hanging out in Atlanta for months. No. Glenn Close is like, drop that bag into my checking account. Show up. Have one funny scene with John Let's C. Riley about whether anyone's 100% a dick. Mention a gene anomaly. And then go home. Where do I sign? <laughs> Speaking of, 
Glenn Close's Nova Prime. She tells Quill that their medical scans say he's uh, not full Terran after all, half ancient being. Let me get back to you on the details there. We have a sequel to whip up. That's right. Back on the freshly repaired Milano, Peter finally opens his mom's parting gift. A mixtape. Jason. Yes. Behold. Your guardians of the binge. What fruit have they wrought? And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's power up the arc reactor and the story. The defining theme of this episode is finding common purpose. Let's talk about the film's development for a hot second here. Let's do it. So this movie was was one of those great summer blockbusters that we all miss at this particular time in 2020. Released August 1st, 2014, the fourth film in the MCU's Phase 2, the first film in the Guardians franchise, and in many ways, the biggest flex of Marvel Studios to date. Because these were absolutely characters that unless you are a huge comics nerd, you you had never heard of at that particular time. Creative team produced once again by Kevin Feige, He began talking about the possibility of going with something fringe like Guardians back in 2010 before the Avengers had even dropped in an August 2010 interview with MTV News' Josh Weigler. He said, quote, I think what Ed Brubaker and Matt Fraction have done with Iron Fist lately is exciting, Feige told MTV News. I think Black Panther and Wakanda has some amazing potential to be a feature film. Doctor Strange, as you've mentioned, there are some obscure titles too, like Guardians of the Galaxy, I think they've been revamped recently in a fun way in the book. And in 2012, he announced Guardians was in fact in the works. And that choice was, as you just noted, a bit of a shock and early heat check for the MCU. Huge heat check. So I'm, you know, like I'm a comics freak and I was not a huge Guardians of the Galaxy person. There was a... At that time, there was a more, I want to say more well-known team called, the. there was a previous Guardians of the Galaxy team, right, that had people like Vance Astro, Yondu was a member of that team, Starhawk is maybe one of the more well-known people on that team. But they had disbanded, and they were not a thing anymore, and I had never gone back and read them. So it was really pretty surprising. Rocket Raccoon was a similarly a absolutely fringe character that was created as a, as a play on the Beatles song Rocky Raccoon. Like there's a lot of weird stuff here. Groot had been around and the species had been around, but like you hadn't really seen much of Groot. Now Peter Quill was created as Star-Lord back in the 70s and was kind of a uh, was a very much like a sideshow character. Very like I don't know if you remember the the very adult illustrated magazine called Heavy Metal that was like around in the eighties and the nineties. I remember like my friends' older brothers would have them. I'd get a hold of them, and it was like oh my god, like drawings of breasts. But like, and it had like a lot of fantasy elements and stuff. Peter right. Quill originally was this kind of like almost like a heavy metal type character. So Quill is a reference to his dick. 
And he was like an asshole. Like he was very much created as an asshole guy. So super out of left field pick to create a Guardians of the Galaxy team. Now they were recreated as after Annihilation Conquest, the the series Annihilation Conquest, into the form that we know now, and I'll talk more about that in the Sanctum. But it, it was really like a a what pick? Like it was right. definitely one of those that made you that made you do a double take. Because again, even me as a, as a as a pretty serious comics person was not super up on the Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. I think that that wait, what double take? response obviously as you just outlined happened in real time but you still have enhanced perspective now looking back after the conclusion of the infinity saga the first three phases and you could say in hindsight really what a crucial moment that was you know we've talked a lot over the course of the pod and we'll continue to about these inflection points in the evolution of the mcu these moments where they tested something, something changed, something evolved, they proved something. And this is definitely one of them. And there are other moments Absolutely. along the path that are of a piece, like Ant-Man. But the ability to say, in part, of course, like we have to acknowledge, because this is a money-making, money-printing enterprise. And one of the questions and one of the goals is always going to be, where is that boundary? What can we make? And how often will people consume it? And where is that line really before they stop and always trying to test that? But the amazing thing is that they haven't found that yet. Every time they've made a movie that people thought was going to be that movie, this was one of them again, Ant-Man was another, they've been sensations. And really, actually, in part because with Guardians, there wasn't as much knowledge and thus attachment or expectation heading in this real sense of genuine surprise and delight. And I think one of the things that's interesting is that Feige positioned this Guardians film back in the run-up to it as being very much removed from the rest of the MCU, not as an on-ramp to these other avenues of the saga. For example, in a 2013 interview with SFX, And this is according to a Screen Rant uh, aggregation of this conversation. Feige said, quote, it's much more of a standalone film. It takes place in the same universe. And when we've been on the other side of that universe in other movies, you might see those characteristics in Guardians. But the Avengers are not involved with what's happening out there at this time. And it is just amazing to look back on that positioning, accurate as it was at the time. The Avengers are not in this movie. That's definitely true. but. This film, the cast of characters, the Infinity Stones, Thanos, the idea of how you can create this chemistry and these pairings that are unexpected sources of, of glee. So much of that, so many of the things that bore fruit and really played played. Essential roles in phase three and in the conclusion of the Infinity Saga come from this. It's Pretty wild. Now, Faye brought on James Gunn to write and direct. Quick note on the script. Nicole Perlman wrote the earliest drafts of it uh, before Gunn was brought on board. And though Gunn is, has said that ultimately his script uh, is very different from Perlman's. Perlman is the first woman to receive a script writing credit for a Marvel film, which is huge. She also played a big role in how Guardians came to be on the screen. As Lily Rothman outlined for Time in July 2014, 
Perlman joined a Marvel writers program in 2009 and selected the Guardians comics IP for her project. This is amazing. As Perlman told Rothman, quote, I can't tell you what the other titles were that they were offering up on the table, but I can tell you that one of them was a little bit more appropriate for me just based on gender. I think they were a little taken aback when I chose Guardians because there were ones that would make a lot more sense if you were a romantic comedy writer or something like that. But it certainly became a Gunn's show once he came aboard. And it's nearly impossible to talk about this movie without talking about James Gunn, who is enmeshed in every aspect of it and has engaged with the fandom about how he crafted the film and and why and what decisions he made and why uh, to a really uncommon degree, certainly uncommon for anybody else involved in the Marvel Universe from acting to directing to producing. It's, he's just always on social talking to people. But we also can't talk about Gunn without noting that the, the scandal that embroiled him when he was fired from Guardians 3 work by Marvel in 2018 after old tweet surface in which he joked about topics such as rape and pedophilia. Tweets were horrific. He apologized for them and reportedly met various times with uh, Disney chair Alan Horn. The cast of the film also called for his reinstatement. In October 2018, Warner Brothers and DC signed him to make the Suicide Squad sequel. And uh, in March 2019, Disney and Marvel reinstated him on Guardians 3. Let's chat for a minute here about the cast of this movie. Chris Pratt as Peter Quill, a.k.a. Star-Lord, known to many before this as Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec. (laughs) And he had had been in Zero Dark Thirty, kind of gone through the the glow up for that. He was in Wanted. He He gets hit with a keyboard. In slow That's motion, right. and then the keys uh, spell fuck you. Let's not forget that. Grateful. <laughs> Zoe Saldana as Gamora. Bradley Cooper voicing Rocket. Loved it. Sean Gunn stood in for Rocket often on set. Fun little bit of trivia there. Vin Diesel voicing Groot. I gotta the tell you. The number of inflections... And utterances of I am Groot. And he had Jason, he had to do it in every language in which the film debuted. It shouts to my guy. One of the, listen, acting is really hard. One of the great, great, great paychecks in movie history, Vin Diesel as Groot. Absolutely. Dave Bautista as Drax the Destroyer, putting that wrestling prowess to use. It's an important one because Drax in the comics in his annihilation depiction and on never wears a shirt. So you needed that guy who could just be ripped all the time. I thought he was one of the real great revelations of this movie. It's like, what a delight to watch him in that role. I agree. And, you know, the thing is, they really. Here's the thing. James Gunn did not ask. David Batista to be uh, Bob De Niro. He he. He gave him stuff that he could deal with, and David Batista absolutely crushed the material he was given. I, I could definitely see him as saying, it's what it is, yeah. <laughs> if he needed to. <laughs> Lee Pace has noted as Ronan the Accuser. Unbelievable, unbelievable hamming it up performance from our guy Lee Pace. Oh my God, just chewing meat Every line is just chewing, chewing, chewing meat. Every now and then 
in a, you're watching a movie and you think, I can tell that the person I'm watching is slightly embarrassed by, by what they're doing. Not Lee Pace. <laughs> He's so here for it all the time. <laughs> he is all fucking in. Infectious. He couldn't wait to be painted blue, strip nude, and bathe in prop blood. <laughs> Karen Gillan is Nebula. Love her. You, you're Great. your fave, and- Nebula. <laughs> Listen, I... She's had a tough life. I'm a big Karen Gillan fan. I think she's got one of the best American accents by a Scottish person out there. Yeah. Well, this is a, I mean, this is an area of passion and scholarship for you, right? Who can do the it accent? Really is. I mean, this listen, is you care about she, deeply. She also pretended to be Sansa Stark one time because somebody uh, mistook her for, for Sophie Turner. And she was like, I, yes, I am. I am Sophie Turner. I have played Sansa Stark. Michael Rooker. Yandu, you might know him as Merle from The Walking Dead. You might know him as Merle. You might uh, know him as Henry from Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Love Michael Rooker. There's another guy who, not even a trace of embarrassment. He is going for oh it, my folks. God. I love, love, love the Yandu whistle arrow. High up on my list of MCU weapons that I would want. It's super cool, and it's also a really cool adaption of his, like, comics gear. Just super weird, and and I loved seeing it. Yeah, it's like, forget about it. If It's like a guided missile that listens to your whistles. It's, <laughs> he, kills like, he kills, like, 20 guys in five seconds. What happens if, you know, every now and then, you're trying to whistle, and the sound doesn't come out the way you want it. What if you, what if you have a misstep with the whistle? It's game over. Not a problem for Michael Rooker, but obviously your head game, uh, your fin game over. But other than that, it seems great. Yeah, obviously, like in very cold conditions or like Mm -hmm. the vacuum of space, it's kind of useless. But in all other areas, it's really good. (laughs) Steve says, feed Yandu crackers and it's over. That would be like that. You take him down with peanut butter, glue his mouth shut. He's got to keep he's got to keep that whistle wet. He's got to keep it wet. Constantly hydrating, drinking water, tea. Mm. He's got to be yeah. able to blow chapstick all the time. He's got like six things of chapstick in his pockets at any given time. It sounds like me during a binge mode recording. Seven really bottles of water actually. and eight chapsticks near me at all times. Jaiman Huntsu as Korath, the pursuer, returning to us in Captain Marvel. Can't wait. Good. And now we get into the cash of the checks run here. I love to cash them. I'm going to read them all at once, and then we can toast them collectively for okay. what they have done. John C. Riley as Day. Glenn Close as Nova Prime. Benicio Del Toro reprising his role as the collector. And Josh Brolin, uncredited here, obviously will come back in a big way as Thanos the Mad Titan, ever heard of him? I mean, where do you even begin? Definitely with Glenn Close. <laughs> we have to. Shouts to my damages stands out there. Oh Glenn Close God. coming in hot for two minutes and 48 seconds of screen time to yeah. say like three lines. She's in the gag reel, which doubled her, her TRT, I think. <laughs> I mean, whoever Glenn Close's agent is, it's amazing shouts work. to you. Get that check. I think I do. I will say, I think that John C. Riley and, and Benicio seem, seem again like they're having a great time. 
you're a huge, huge, huge admirer of the Del Toro orgasmic quiver as he covets the, yeah, the, the stones. Quiver. You love yeah. that? The hand motion? I, <laughs> I, I, I don't even know how to describe it. That and and Rocket's mocking of that is truly one of the weirdest things. I just want I I've never looked at it, but I wonder what it says in the script. Like the collector is delighted, and then and then that's just what uh, Benicio came up with. It's just a beautiful thing. Speaking of beautiful things, let's check out that Rotten Tomatoes score. Ninety one percent among critics, ninety two percent among audience members. That's pretty good, folks. Widely adored. Similarly at the box office, 333.2 domestically, 439.6 internationally, 772.8 globally. We've got a hit on our hands here. But the key question is, did you like the movie? I love this movie. It was just super, super fun. I remember just being one thrilled at the adventure of it all, the funness I loved the idea of using this mixtape as like a through line for not just a, a plot through line, but an emotional through line for the characters. Um, and, you know, I remember at the time thinking, man, if Marvel wants to sell toys, Rocket Raccoon and Groot, here we come. Just a really cool addition to the MCU. And as we noted previously, a huge flex and really the moment where I thought not only have they figured out what their formula is, there's a clear hunger for this material, for this content, for a widening of the scope, because it's certainly not about selling you at that point these characters. It's not about, uh, you know, people's affinity for Peter Quill, the Star-Lord and Rocket Raccoon and Gamora and Drax. It's about you want to be part of the expanding Marvel universe so that you understand when these characters come back, what the context is. You know, it was really about selling Marvel as a brand. Um, and in that sense, could not have been more successful. What about you? Love it. <laughs> One of my absolute favorites. I I've been trying to think back on first viewings and the most fun I had seeing a Marvel movie for the first time in the theater. This is up there for me. I just remember smiling the entire time I was watching the movie, except for the few moments where I was brought to, surprise, surprise, actual tears, and leaving the theater thinking I had no expectations coming into this. And what an absolute treat that was. Yeah. What a real treat. And I still, when I return to it time after time, just love watching it. I slacked our, our binge mode slack after the most recent rewatch and said, Guardians, almost a perfect movie. And I think that one of the only real demerits is, again, not a critique that is specific to this film. It's something that we've talked about and will continue to. The quote-unquote Marvel villain problem. Again, I love Lee Pace. You're going to explain later why Ronan is yes. a more interesting character in his comics incarnation than maybe what we see here. The the uh, We're also going to talk later today in the Arc Reactor about how much of the role that the villains, not just Ronan, but the Ronan, Nebula, Thanos constellation play in this film yeah is about setting up the ensuing Infinity Saga story. So it's not in a vacuum in this film's script, the two hours you spend here since the most compelling villain, but that's one of the few knocks. I, I just think there's so much to love. The tone, 
Yeah. The humor, the humanity, the heart, and the way that they all blend together so seamlessly. The personalities, the chemistry among the cast, the sheer volume of characters that were introduced for this film. I I think could have been a real problem in if handled less adeptly because it's just so many new things that people are being introduced to and have to try to understand or accept that maybe they can't understand on a first viewing. And that can be a barrier, but it just wasn't here. It felt like, wow, all of these new things to explore and learn about. Yeah, I think they did something really smart, which was, you know, when I, as I was on my rewatch and I was taking notes, you realize that this film is kind of it's like set piece after set piece after set piece. There's plot, of course. You know, it's the it's basically about the team coming together to stop this bad guy from doing a bad thing, stopping Ronan from doing something terrible. Um, but there's not a ton of plot twists. You know, it's Peter finds the orb. He tries to sell it. Uh, then there is a chase where other members, the future members of the Gal- of Guardians of the Galaxy, try and stop him from selling it. They get thrown in jail. They break out. They get split up. They come back together. They become a team. They fight Ronan. They win. It's right. not like a ton of stuff happens. So it's it's constant motion, constant action, and everything's moving by at such a brisk pace that you don't really have a lot of time to think about how all the things that are you're being introduced to many for many people for the first time all these concepts mm-hmm. of different alien races etc all the ideas all the comics continuity is actually exists as deeper stories but right. it's just kind of stuff that's flying by they're not trying to they're not actually trying to get you to absorb it it's just kind of there as window dressing to fill out the universe but then if you want to look deeper you can and you'll you'll find that there's stories there and in that sense it 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 feels like a lot mm-hmm. but in the moment it's it isn't really a lot the experience of it isn't this overload because there's just so much action all the time it's such a ride this is a, an yeah. ode to comic book storytelling and oh, to yeah. comic book energy. And that vibe is so not just unapologetic, but gleeful throughout the colors, the yeah. flash. You know, we talked in our in both of our Thorpods actually about the way your heart just kind of lifts when you see the constellation, when you look up from Asgard and the Bifrost into yeah. the sky. That's what this entire movie looks like. And you pair that then with not only the irreverent spirit and the quirk, you know, little things like they curse in this movie, which shouldn't yeah. seem like, frankly, worthy of observation, but is actually kind of interesting. It's, it's it establishes a little bit of that, like, we don't give a fuck edge that the whole movie has and then you know you mentioned the music and i i don't think we can really overstate the role that it plays there's there's the tyler bates score which i don't always think about when i'm away from the movie the way that i think about awesome mix volume one and the soundtrack but then when you're back in the movie the score grips you tremendously and Gunn has has talked often about the role that it played and the collaborative nature of working on the script and the score and then the 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 mix the soundtrack i mean you can read a lot of uh, interviews with james Gunn about this the way that he selected the songs curated that selection he he gave an interview uh with with vulture alex suskin in 2014 about how he would actually play the songs on set so that if you're seeing the characters move 
to a song a certain way, that was actually happening. And I think that connects nicely to the use of, of diegetic sound in the film. When you are hearing a song, it is not just playing for you, the viewer. The characters are hearing it too. And I think that that creates a connection and a bridge between viewer and character in the film that the effect of which is, I think, kind of immeasurable. And, and I really cherish. And I just think this is an amazing little nugget here. The soundtrack reached number one on the Billboard. That's so crazy. It's really no wild. original songs, like no new music, right? So it was the the first soundtrack without new songs to reach that milestone. Unbelievable. And then you know the scope again. We talked about how, on the one hand, this is totally fringe, surprising, but it also does really widen inside yeah. of the story what Marvel is trying to do. You know, Marvel goes to space was a big narrative at the time. Now, obviously. We already had two Thor movies. Marvel had been to space. But this was different, a broadening of the cosmic mandate beyond Thor and Thor's world. But also, I think, and again, as we talked about that meta sense of broadening the scope and the purview of what Marvel was willing to try and of what fans were willing to consume. And it really worked. So let's talk about why. Let's talk about the plot. Let's do it. Start with Star-Lord. So the movie opens with our first encounter with Peter Quill was a child in the cold open before the credits roll. And this is like in like a screenwriting book when they tell you to like set up the motivations, the emotional stakes for the character. This is like a, kind of like the perfect example of how you do it. So he's on Earth and the year is 1988. He is really encasing himself in a protective cocoon listening to his music on his Walkman that his mother gave him. And he's uh, doing this to find comfort, to process the pain of having to watch his mother go through an illness. He's facing the devastating loss of his mom, Meredith, who we'll learn in volume two died from a brain tumor that Ego, uh, the living planet, Peter's celestial father, put in her brain. Really cool guy. The quote, he was an angel composed of pure light description, which uh, she says about him uh, from Meredith here, foretells Ego's cosmic properties. And we see Peter's nurturing instincts, even here, how he fought kids at school because they heard an innocent frog that he wanted yeah. to protect. Everything Love in this, this cold open is telling us about Peter's emotional stakes. I'm also yes. so affected by the fact that it's like, it's perfect fantasy in the sense that this is the transcendence of pain through magic or science fantasy. And that is, it's the perfect setup for that. Here's a kid, loses his family, Loses his dad's not around. His mom dies. So uh, you know, in a if this was a grounded story, here's a kid who tells everybody that well, my dad is like a spaceman, and uh, my mom fell in love with him. But here it's true, and I think that's really such an incredible. That's part of what I find so moving about this story. I agree completely, and I also love the moments where that is in not inverted necessarily, but where we get the, the full continuation of that circle. So like you said, what would a grounded story do there? Well, what does Peter do when he's in the sky? His dad's mm -hmm. David Hasselhoff, right? Someone who yeah. represents the place he left, the life he didn't actually live. And it's not just that the pain is a portal to the magical realm or the fantastic. It's that when he accesses those things, they help him understand and process that pain so that he can tap back into his humanity. It's all it's all connected. And the story is, again, I think very fun and lively and bright, but yeah, actually quite tender and 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 yeah. moving as well. And uh, this this opening 
scene is no exception. You know, Peter can't take the the parting gift from his dying mother or even take her hand. That moment is, is really crushing because taking it would mean acknowledging that this is goodbye. This is it. This is farewell with the person he most adores in the world, his protector. And we will see later how deeply he regrets that moment, searching for closure to that point in time until he is holding the power stone. What does he see then? Meredith, his mother, as Gamora is reaching out to him, take my hand, he sees this moment again. And the people who made this movie thought about exactly what we were just discussing quite a bit as they were crafting it, how to marry these elements, the cosmic with the grounded. In a 2014, July 2014 interview with Collider's Steve Weintraub, Feige spoke about that element, how important it was to ground the story in that way. Quote, as a human from Earth, his references are from Earth, his pop culture knowledge is from Earth of a particular period when he was a kid there. But the notion of the Walkman, the notion of that mixtape that has a significance in the story, but at the same time provides a literal soundtrack to the movie, which helps anchor it for people who could care less or perhaps are even turned off. I don't know these people. I don't want to know these people. For people who are turned off by the notion of a space movie or a space opera. And they really did achieve that, balancing the scope and the scale with that human touch. We fast forward 26 years later on the planet Morag and we meet Peter, who is, you know, a completely different person. He is, for one, adult, grown up in this completely different context, uh, geared up with this cool technological uh, gadgetry. He's mm-hmm. got the cool face mask. He looks like he's having an absolute blast dancing around <laughs> in the moisture of Morag. And he <laughs> still has the Walkman. He's <sighs> jamming out to this Walkman uh, to Redbones Come and Get Your Love. And it's such a tonal shift and tonal contrast from what we just saw that it's Really iconic. And I think the cool thing about those two scenes is that as the movie unfurls, we realize that it's not that Peter has like moved on. It's that he's buried all that pain and it comes out yep. as, as the movie moves on, which is just exactly really well done. Of course, he's doing his best Indiana Jones impression here, right down to the, the pedestal snatch when he comes to the orb. And Pratt and Gunn have spoken over the years of the influences on Star-Lord's MCU presentation, Indiana Jones, Han Solo, Marty McFly. He's part of that great kind of uh, white guy, rogue adventurer and ravager tradition. But there's also the initial, oh, he's he's pretending to be that guy. He's cosplaying mm-hmm. it being that guy aspect to Quill. Uh, yep. For instance, this exchange with Korath, the pursuer, Kree, and his Sakaran soldiers. Hey, you know what? There's another name you might know me by. Star-Lord. And later on Xandar, a similar exchange with Day, who calls him Star Prince and mocks his aides. This guy is a code name. Come on, man. It's an outlaw name. And this is also just a really cool reference to the origin of Peter Quill, the origin of Star-Lord. He's like, is in his comics origin, a fucking jerk that nobody likes. (laughs) He wants to be that rogue. He wants to craft that persona to be that guy everyone wants to be or be with. And he wants the glory. He wants the payday. He wants to be lauded. He wants to be admired. He wants to be known, recognized, valued, manufacturing the things that he didn't get in in a more traditional sense in his life. But it hasn't quite happened for 
him that who star lord man legendary outlaw guys yeah. is just honestly so guys? <laughs> delicious but as we will see as the film unfolds despite peter being the kind of dude who uh forgot that a recent sexual partner barit was still on his ship tough look for a guy here not a great look rough one the same tenderness despite that and desire to protect and build a family is there as you noted beneath this carefully crafted exterior that cranberry ravager leather jamie lannister season five game of thrones leather jacket just waiting to be unearthed again and the one reminder the constant the reason that we never totally doubt that is the mix playing on the walkman as he travels on the ship he has not let go of those roots yeah they're an anchor for him a connection to that heart and when yandu lectures peter on on breaking the ravager code by stealing the orb we see what what seems to to be like a fracture this real derision between them but as we'll we'll hear later in the film when quill calls yandu his only family in a conversation with Gamora. And of course, most notably in volume two, when Yondu, spoiler, sacrifices himself and dies for Quill. And I am not ashamed to say that I wept like a child during his funeral. <laughs> Beautiful. Even this often foul union, even that in this universe has its roots in the desire to find a real familial bond, not just approximating that idea of family, but but finding a way to forge it anew. Yandu saved Peter, as we'll learn, by not handing him over to his dad. We get that tease, great, numerous great sequel setups at the end of this movie. And then, of course, in volume two, we learn all about ego. And Peter also loves Yandu and sees the redemptive qualities in him despite their opposition in this film. Before Quill can tap into that protective instinct that drives him to become a hero, that desire to fight for more than just himself, he has to evolve beyond his state of, you know, of arrested 40-year-old, definitely not a virgin development, his puerile buffoonery, tossing the orb like it's a juggling ball, getting into street fights with strangers, cranking up his middle finger for the <laughs> Xandar in uh, Novacore and saying, I didn't know how this machine worked. As all says of Quill and the group, aptly, what a bunch of a-holes. But they're such lovable a-holes, aren't they? That's right. Uh, yeah. Seeing Quill's devotion to the Walkman once he's in the kiln is quite moving. Hooked on a feeling blue suede, 1973, that song belongs to me, he says, as the, as the I, guard takes his stuff. I love that word choice, belongs to me. Like that need yeah. when you don't have that comfort of the familiar to latch onto something and say like, this is my one bearing. Did we ever figure out how he was charging it in space? Did he just have a, a bunch of triple A's on hand? <laughs> I, Maybe I, some I mean, of those batteries they steal in volume two? <laughs> I mean, again, it's a very, the thing that we can't conceive of, and it's very hard to conceive of, is just like when Rocket meets Tony Stark in the comics, he's like, your tech is a fucking joke dude. Right. So they're just used to, I'm sure they could just whip up some, some double A's, but still I would love to know how, uh, how it happens. Uh, of course, 
Quill intervenes on Gamora's behalf when she's accosted by various toughs who have been, uh, you know, hurt by Ronan's various horrors that he's inflicted across the galaxy, Ronan and Thanos. And because he wants her help selling the orb and getting that payday, of course, but also because, like, as we will see over the course of the film, where her in particular is concerned, he wants to be chivalrous. He cares about her. He's connected to her. He's experiencing an emotional connection that goes beyond just, I'm attracted to this person. Let's not shy away from the fact, though, that while that clarity and awakening and introspection is is to come that is the emotional journey of the film here right now it's a partnership of convenience for all parties for all Everybody. members of the gang and that is actually i think more interesting and ultimately more powerful because that genuine desire to help each other and to help other people that investment in finding something bigger than themselves that shared purpose that will ultimately drive them They have to work for that. They have to earn that. They have to come to feel that that is worth fighting for. That's not actually natural to them. And so when you get that first shot of them all together as a team, infiltrating the watchtower, their their yellow jumper, you know, leg in Quill's hand, the prosthetic leg that Rocket made him steal, fucked up shit from Rocket there, an insult on Drax's lips. It's, It's really something. And Quill, amazingly, is the one who emerges as the leader, despite his oft infantile <laughs> disposition. Hey, nobody's killing anybody on my ship. We're stuck together until we get the money. <laughs> Leadership. <laughs> but it's that pursuit which uh, creates that emotional evolution, that that moral evolution. It spawns it. It's on nowhere on the verge of meeting the collector that Quill and Gamora opened up to each other about their... The, pasts about the pain in their pasts he tells her about his mother and about the mixtape and he tells her about the joy of dancing quote it's the greatest thing there is and they share an amusing exchange about sticks and butts who put the sticks in their butts (laughs) then a really tender moment i fooled around and fell in love and their hands touch and it leads to be a classic i'm not some starry-eyed waif here to succumb to your pelvic sorcery from gomorrah here but it's a nice bit of groundwork for what their relationship becomes and for uh for the eventual bloom that comes to that rose in in volume two and the, and then of course the absolute agony that overcomes quill when gomorrah dies in infinity war and leads him to misstep against thanos and then the remarkable nature of watching them retrace these steps of shared discovery an unexpected attraction in endgame when gamora returns from earlier in the timeline and much to her absolute shock this guy discovers <laughs> discovers that she's somehow with Peter Quill in the future. Yes, it happens, honey. Incredible stuff. Helpfully, then end here. The movie asks the same questions that we would be inclined to. Why would these people band together? Why would they make these choices? When Rocket, who is on nowhere, absolutely appalled and horrified that Kamara and Quill still have the orb. Why would you keep that? You had that in your purse. I love that. Sees that they are determined to figure out how to handle it, not just to let it be someone else's problem. And he says, what are you, some saint all of a sudden? What has the galaxy ever done for you? Why would you want to save it? Quill's reply? Because I'm one of the idiots who lives in it. 
But even there, there's a level of practicality at play in his outlook. He's driven by self-preservation as much as anything. I got to stay alive. I got to avoid arrest. I got to cash in. What gives him the final push? It's not just facing death himself as Ronin attacks, not just seeing what the Power Stone can do. It's seeing Gamora frozen in the vacuum of space, and he puts his helmet on her to save her, turns himself over to Yondu, not dying, but setting the stage for being able to wield the stone at film's Mm -hmm. end. Clearly, there's something we can tell right then about his physiology that is allowing him to survive in these conditions. His parentage reveal ultimately in volume two and setting the stage in a way for that decisive scene with Yondu in volume two as well. But in the moment, for those bragging rights about what a swell fucking guy he is, I saw you out there. I don't know what came over me, but I couldn't let you die. I found something inside of myself. Something incredibly heroic <laughs> i mean not to brag <laughs> she's just like the way she deflates in that moment it's just it's a real quill even as you change never change moment for him this is why they cast chris pratt because of that chemistry that balance between humor kind of being a dick but also doing it in a self-effacing way that you can't help but like this guy. He goes from observing fairly that normal people don't think about eating other people to saying to Yandu, with real pain, real misery, you abducted me, man. You stole me from my home and my family. Peter's mom has died. His father is gone, but he still had a home. He still had a family. And Yandu plucked him from everything that he had ever known. On Ego's orders, of course, we will later learn in Volume 2, and he did not bring Quill to Pops, thankfully, a kindness that we find out about later. He opened his eyes to the possibilities of the galaxy, to a totally different, vast kind of life, but he also did it without offering Peter a choice in the matter. And that idea of having a choice is what sparks Peter's real breakthrough, real moral breakthrough. Quote, is that what she's been filling your head with, boy? Yandu asks, Quill and Ronan, both called boy by their nominal partner turned foe. Uh, Sentiment? He says it like it's the filthiest word there is, but it's ultimately a key for Yandu in volume two for Quill right here. And he convinces Yandu not to kill him by promising him money, vast credits, power, the ore. But when he speaks to his his fellows, we see the truth, or at least 12% of the truth. And of course, Pepper and... Well, Tony would approve. Pepper would not approve. (laughs) Justice for Pepper, still. I need your help, Quill says. I look around at us and you know what I see? Losers. I mean, like, folks who have lost stuff, and we have. Man, we have, all of us, our homes, our families, normal lives. Usually life takes more than it gives. I love that line. But not today. Today it's given us something. It has given us a chance. And Drax asks him to do what? What does Quill say? To give a shit for once, not run away. And that is the crux of it. Giving a shit, finding something in yourself that makes you care, finding other people who make you care about them and yourself and each other. The heart of the story, the heart of these characters' evolution, they lose those families. Yes, but then they build a new one together. That old binge mode favorite, Jason, the family you choose. They chose each other. They chose to build this together to fight for each other together. And with that choosing comes not 
altruism exactly. Sorry, Rocket. He'll, he'll mention his altruistic <laughs> actions in the movie. But action, effort, caring, trying. Cue a perfectly executed planning montage and an inspiring walking crotch adjusting so sequence in slow-mo, of course. Got to do that. And some savvy strategy <laughs> from Quill, which you didn't know he had in him when heading back to the site of their arrest. That's well, right. He said his crew just escaped from prison, so he'd have no other reason to risk coming to Xandar to help. He says that he's an a-hole, but he's not. And I'm quoting him here, 100% a dick. Do you believe him? <laughs> I don't know that I believe anyone's 100% a dick, ma'am. Which is the moral of the movie, folks. <laughs> what a lesson it is. <laughs> Do you believe him? One of Glenn Close's three lines, by the way. <laughs> Unbelievable. And Quill's ready. He's ready for action, not just for talk, but for the walk. In flight on the approach, they got my dick message. It's incredible. When Korath approaches and calls him Star-Lord, we get that just absolutely precious. Finally, with the biggest grin possible plastered on Quill's face. And it is, of course, not always easy in the movie to smile. For example, after Groot's death. Devastating moment, and in the face of Ronan's terrifying proclamation on the surface of Xandar, the one place that they said he could not be allowed to reach, behold, he shouts to the people of Xandar, you're guardians of the galaxy. And I, I just, I think we should thank Ronan, honestly, for the it's branding good. idea. Catchy name. <laughs> Appreciate the help. <gasps> what fruits have they brought? They have wrought dancing and a rendition of Ooh, child from Quill. The perfect conclusion, really, to this film. The utter so weird of it, the levity, the stakes, all in this Guardian's brew. What are you doing? Ronan asks, genuinely perplexed, just confounded in what should be his moment of triumph. Dance off, bro. This required, of course, courage, but nothing to that point matches the courage of Quill reaching out for the stone, which we already knew would certainly kill him and cause an explosion that would be massive. But he doesn't die. His half-celestial DNA, as we'll learn, helps him prove equal to, at least for a very short time, the power of the Power Stone. But even then, he cannot do it alone. He needs his fellow guardians. Gamora reaches out, asking him to take her hand, recalling, again, that callback to Peter's mom's final moments, giving him the chance to make that one moment right in one small way and to become for others what he lost in her. You're mortal, Ronan cries. How? You said it yourself, bitch. With the Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy. And he's really embracing personal, emotional growth. Mm -hmm. He's becoming an adult. He's becoming a grown-up. Right in front of our eyes. Before we see little Groot grow, we see Quill grow. They'll be fine, Day, he says. <laughs> I'm going to keep an eye on them. You? Yeah, me. So much so that he feels ready at last to read his mom's final letter, open her final gift, which I think he, you could have, I think you would have figured Our it engine. out. Just touching it, holding it, a cassette wrapped like that in a thing. I think if you shook it a couple of times, you'd know what it was. I don't think it's I don't think it's about not knowing. I think it's that he knows it's the last new thing yes. from her. Right. So once he opens it, that's it. There's nothing else ever again. 
That's devastating. As a person who will hold off on watching the final episode of a show because I don't want it to end, like I under I understand that feeling at the same time. Yes. Yes. I'll just let you know. Twelve songs get old after a while. (laughs) As a kid who uh, went down and shook all my Christmas presents many, many times while everyone's asleep, I would have 100% been like, this is a cassette tape. I would have known. I'm just saying that. (laughs) It's a really moving moment when he finally pops it in. And we see not only that she uh, loved her son, gave him that love through the form of music, but also the name he carries. The name is not just a boast, but a promise to protect and lead my little Star-Lord. That makes me cry, that part of the letter. My little Star-Lord. Oh, I'm getting teary-eyed right now. It is a sweet movie. Secretly a very sweet movie. (sighs) My little Star-Lord. Let's talk about Rocket and Groot. The first thing that we hear from this dynamic duo, Zandarians, what a bunch of losers. (laughs) That is how we are introduced to Rocket scanning the populace, mocking haircuts, calling a small child a gargoyle. Honestly, a legendary, legendary debut. The shorthand, the level of understanding that Rocket and Groot share is is also instantly apparent to us. We can see not just that they're an odd couple, but that they have a really special bond. And the contrast in their dispositions is just as notable. Groot, despite his hulking form and the violence he isn't capable of inflicting, as we will see over the course of the film, seems very gentle. Doing the job of a tough but not toughly, Rocket is diminutive but fierce, ready to show everyone how hard he is. He relishes the hunt. He relishes the boasts. It's not immediately clear when he talks about escaping 22 prisons, collecting bounties, how legit this possibly is. Again, like Rocket is like two and a half feet tall, so he he could be talking shit. But we see quickly that he has the chops and the actual bona fides. And I'll talk a little bit more in the the Sanctum about really how, how kind of how good he is at what he does anyway. Tactical genius. So I'll just leave that here for right now. He's a ta- he's an actual tactical genius, folks. He First of all, he gets the entire kiln to fear him via Groot with the nostril tear, right? Successfully leads their prison break, turns off the artificial gravity, immediately figures out how to do that. And this is all just instinct. This is all like, this is not equipment that he has any experience with. He just knows what to do. And then of course, having fun with Peter Quill and telling him that he needs to get a guy's leg that he doesn't really need. He just likes it. He just likes having gadgets around. That's all. Quill had to transfer him 30,000 credits, Jason. Also, I think more importantly, Quill, just to note, you took the guy's <laughs> leg. That, that's the around. real takeaway. It's away. really sad. Awful. We also see yeah. that Rocket's identity is a delicate matter for him. It's so it is sad. heart-wrenching. When Quill calls him a talking raccoon, he doesn't know what a raccoon is. Think about that for a minute. What does that tell us about his life, about his history, about his origin? It starts off in the movie, our exposure to this idea, as just one more way for us to see his brashness and his bravado. Ain't no thing like me except me. He's like our little hairy, cybernetically enhanced Jamie Lannister. There are no men like me, only me. But the heart comes out. And given that Rocket is one of the most exuberant characters in the film, it's, it's surprising 
but true that some of the film's most subtly touching moments come with or from him, such as Quill and us seeing the cybernetic nodes, the scars on his back in the prison scene, the the product of the experiments that were performed against his will on him, the ones that he will say to us later that he never asked for. When Drax and Rocket brawl on Nowhere, we see how insecure Rocket really is beneath this, this gruff exterior, this kind of fearsome shell. And it's the same for all of them. We're all hiding this trauma underneath this fierce exterior. You just want to laugh at me like everyone else, yep. shouts at Drax and then tells Quill. He thinks I'm some stupid thing. He does. Well, I didn't ask to get made. I didn't ask to be torn apart and put back together over and over and turned into some, some little monster. He called me vermin. She called me a rodent. Thor later will call him a rabbit, Heart which is better, but still, you know, it's just honestly so devastating. And in a film that, that places so much emphasis on cheer and fun and flash and color and on channeling a newfound purpose and finding your place in the world, it's one of the most effective reminders of how de debilitating it can feel to feel like you don't have any agency, that someone else has set you on the course that you're on in your life. Yes. Yes. Groot's tenderness, the soft side, that's more readily apparent to us. Uh, you know, yes, he can mow down foes in the prison break with the best of them, but his inclination more so than the rest of them at first, is to help. The group's initial conversation on Nowhere, for example, hinges on outlaws and prophets. And when kids emerge, Quill's like, watch your wallets? Just fucked up. Groot, what does he do? He makes a flower a in the palm of his hand and gifts it to a stranger who is transported by this moment, this brief moment of somebody else imparting beauty and, and happiness and smiles into the world. But Groot, just like Rocket, has to contend with people calling him a thing, like the collector who, as we mentioned, but it bears repeating, as a way of saying hello, asks if he can buy Groot's carcass. Not acceptable at all. Let me just say of the collector, I think one of the, uh, one of the most subversive and meta things that Marvel Comics has ever done is create a character who is a completionist, loves to collect things, much mm -hmm. like Marvel yep. Comics' own fans, and turn that guy yeah. into an absolute freak weirdo supervillain who cares way too much about collecting stuff. It's really one of the, it's one of the great trolls point. on its own fans and like tweaks. Not a, it's not a real troll, but it's a, it's a really subversive tweak of a certain strain of, of comic book fan that I swear every time he comes up in comics, I'm like, this is fucking amazing that they did this. <laughs> <gasps> what is the uh the the Howard the Duck of your personal comics collection? Oh, <laughs> Gotta put it in a glass case, man. I honestly don't have anything that good. Most of the stuff I have is trades and I have a few stray issues. Actually, like the stuff that I have that's really cool is like not 
Marvel stuff. It's like a lot of indie comics and like hand-drawn stuff. So I don't have anything. And that's the stuff that I want to keep. But I don't really have any any Marvel stuff that I'm like, oh man, I got to keep this in mint condition. I just like reading it, you know. And of course, Rocket and Groot have each other. When Karina, who is has certainly not having a great time, causes the Power Stone to explode in the museum, Groot grabs Rocket, saving his life, cradling him, protecting him with his own body. And he wants to save everyone else too. That's just who Groot is. When Rocket says, it's time to go try to live as much of their lives as they can before the stone destroys everything, Groot insists on finding Quill and Gamora. He's the one who has to convince him to do it. And this is after he pulled Drax out of a vat of chemicals. Drax was just going to drown. Look at Groot. In, in, bra- in brain fluid. yellow brain spinal fluid. Drowned in <laughs> celestial spinal stem fluid by the guy who killed your wife and daughter and you rang up and asked to come over. Tough one. We should know. Now, in the comics, Drax is like genetically created to kill Thanos. Like he actually is like, can kill him pretty easy. But Ronan, forget it. It's like, that. here's the other thing. You want to fight this guy. You want to fight this guy. You want to fight this guy. And then you get tuned up like that. You need to like look in the mirror because you didn't even like bother. Ro- like Ronan was fucking around. He could have ended it in one second. Honestly? Really reminds me of the proud college football <laughs> tradition of teens, teams that end up getting annihilated saying, we <laughs> want Bama. That's what it feels like. It's the we it's want Bama really, of the MC. We want Bama and drunk dialing Bama and saying, come out here and stomp me into the turf. And that's what happened. Anyway, Groot wants to save everyone else as well. When Rocket says, we got to live as much of our lives as we can before the stone destroys everything. It's Groot that insists on finding Quill and Gamora and Rocket, despite the show, has formed an attachment to Groot too. Quote, I know they're the only friends we ever had, he says before Quill rallies them to go to Xandar. They have many risings, many awakenings, realizing that here are other misfits that can't find a place and maybe our place is all together. Yes, He is uh, still not inclined to take their final step together, though, even after pursuing Quill and Gamora, finding them the hilarious exchange with (laughs) them and Drax about what constitutes saving us, really. If you're going to blow us up, does that count? Doesn't want to fight on Xandar, though. You're asking us to die, he says, in response to Quill's pep talk, Coach Taylor, clear eyes, full heart speech. But... When Groot rises, they all look at Rocket and he rises too. And we get, oh, what the hell? I don't got that long a lifespan anyway, which is concerning, by the way. We should circle back to that at some point. How long does Rocket have left with us? Raccoons and possums only live like two, three years in the wild, which is very sad. I mean, I got to hope the, the I'm, enhancements I'm, I think are extended that that, I absolutely that. think that there's way too many credits riding on Rocket's uh, continued health and well-being in the galaxy, I think he's going to be fine. I'm just saying, like, in the real world, possums, raccoons, they don't don't really really go that that long. God. Please protect Rocket, who says, now I'm standing. Y'all happy? We're all standing up now. A bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. And... That's that is part of the movie's charm, too. Yes, it's in on the joke, not afraid to make fun of itself. And that doesn't undercut the humor. It ultimately elevates it. It's just the best. 
as is, of course, our beautiful Flora Colossus. Groot. Lighting the way on the dark aster with his illuminating embers. Really one of the, that's one of the moments that makes this movie. Gorgeous. Special. <laughs> is it takes the time to have this really weird, beautiful moment where Groot just does something that has everybody in awe. Like in the middle of a fight, he just like creates this beautiful glowing pollen that everybody's like, wow, man. really beautiful. And of course, uh, there's that great moment. Of course, he's really good in a fight. Recall the time when he uh, extended his branch arm and impaled like 12 dudes and then whipped them back and <laughs> forth into the walls of the tunnel aboard the Aster. Gave them all a little bit of the Blonsky treatment there. Bones of gravel after that. Really with a plum, and then turns to his shocked colleagues who I, I should say have seen a lot of violence themselves. Drax is a mass murderer. They don't really talk about that in the movie, but he's a mass murderer and he smiles and they're all like, holy shit. And then of course our five, uh, when our five pals realize that they can't escape the crash, Groot is utterly uh, selfless uh, in a scene that recalls uh, one of the great moments when the great, couple of pages from Annihilation Conquest when he does something very similar, which is just extend his body, his branches and his his roots around his friends into this cocoon-like ball that keeps them completely safe. This wonderful desire to protect that goes much deeper than, than um, you would have expected from him. And, and Rocket cries. And this really gets me. Yeah. No, Groot, me. you can't. You'll die. Why are you doing this? Why? And Groot oh. reaches out a tiny tendril to Rocket's cheek. And for the first time in the film, he says something other than I am Groot. We are Groot, he tells them. Uh. Just really an unbelievable moment. And thankfully, thankfully, I don't know what people who don't read the comics thought at the time. I knew this would happen. But thankfully, baby Groot will rise. Man, but I wondered, like, did you, what did you, what did you think? That's it for Groot. Groot's gone. What did you think at that moment? Were you just like, Groot's done? I'm trying to remember. I, yeah, I think I did think that because you're so invested not only in Groot, but in the, in the bonds that they share with each other at that point. And so you're not just feeling your own pain for saying goodbye to Groot, but you're just so forcefully feeling Rocket's anguish as he holds up that little charred twig. Ugh. It's it is really it's really really hard. It's really really hard. <gasps> what a beautiful sacrifice, though. Harry walked into the forest and Groot <laughs> extended his branches on the dark aster. Spend a moment here on that murderer you just mentioned, Drax. Fearsome intro, big guy covered in the decorative scarring, borrowing knives from anyone who will lend them out. Driven, as we learn, by this thirst for vengeance. But not an ally of Ronan, another character driven by a thirst for vengeance, a foil, a foe, motivated by the love that he carries for his daughter and his wife, who Ronan killed, and his need to avenge their deaths. He could not protect them. And so that is now the defining event in his life. When he gets the chance to shift his bias, form surprising new allegiances, and protect others, it feels more natural to him 
than it does for some of the others. Because in his own twisted, fucked up way, he was pursuing something like that from the start. Drax is uh, purely literal. Has no feel for metaphor. When he Mm. is threatening Gamora and Peter Quill comes to try and talk him down, Peter Quill says, you know, he, he draws his finger across his throat and says, like, are you going to do this? And and Drax says, why would I put my finger on his throat? He asks Quill after he mimes killing Ronan, which is hysterical, as is this. Quill, yeah, I'll have to agree with the walking thesaurus on that one, Drax. Do not ever call me a thesaurus. It's just a metaphor, dude. To which Rocket says, his people are completely literal. Metaphors are going to go over his head. Tracks, nothing goes over my head. My reflexes are too fast. I would catch it. (laughs) Just an incredible line reading from Batista there. So funny. Oh, God. Put some booze in Drax, though. And he catches something other than metaphors. Catches those bad ideas, like calling Ronan to come to nowhere. Yikes. Even when he's endangering others and acting like a total moron, though, it is tough to be fully mad for a long time at Drax because he is so clearly driven by the pure pain that fuels him. I don't remember killing your family, Ronan says to him. And he's just pummeling him. I doubt I'll remember killing you either. Now, he will walk that back later in the climactic showdown, saying he does, in fact, remember it. I don't no believe him. Of agony in an effort to wound and to know. It's, 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 he's, yeah. it's gamesmanship. He's trying to torture Drax, wound him, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally. And in a way, is reminiscent of, of Aldrich mm, Killian and Tony. Tony! In <laughs> Iron Man 3, Drax is not just dealing with his despair and his grief. He has to contend with the fact that the defining moment of his life, the animating moment of his life, means absolutely nothing to the person who made him feel this way. Really brutal. Imagine that. Like the the ultimate pain in your life is not even a, it's not even a like a speed bump to someone else. This guy doesn't even recall it. Awful. Now, self-awareness, of course, blossoms for Drax as it does for everyone else after he gets his the fucking tar beat out of him by Bama. Drax, to his credit, realizes that he had fucked this all up. I was a fool. All the anger, all the rage was just to cover my loss and Rockets were playing. Oh, boo-hoo. My wife and child are dead. I don't, I, oh, I don't care if it's mean. Everybody's got dead people. It's no excuse to get everybody else dead along the way, which is... Harsh, but I think, Rocket, you got to find a better way to say it. That's all. It's a shocking moment in the film when he says that, but there is some wisdom there if he stated it more gently. Like you first of number one, again, it's Bama. You can't take him. You're, you couldn't even hurt him even a little. Like, why? This is so dumb. Anyway, mm-hmm. Drax also doesn't have the best folks. I wasn't listening. I was thinking of something else, he says <laughs> But he has a, that moment. When did, but we, he's, when did we decide that? <laughs> he has perhaps the most clarity of intention of any of our characters. We, we know exactly what he wants to do the entire movie. I will fight beside you, he tells Quill. And in some ways, it's the least surprising proclamation because, you know, we 
absolutely know he wanted to fight Ronan. Ronan. We saw it, wants to avenge his family. He's been talking about it the entire movie. But his tone, his approach, his reasons are different here. He's not fighting to exercise this pain of loss that he has. He's not fighting for ghosts. He's fighting for living people now, the people that are around him. I want you all to know that I'm grateful for your acceptance after my blunders, he says as they infiltrate Ronin's ship. He has some learning and some growing left to do. It is pleasing to once again have friends. You, Quill, are my friend. This dumb tree, he is my friend. And this green whore, she too, which is Real record scratch moment from Drax. What are you doing, bro? Anyway, but he's willing to shoot Nebula for her, which is nice. Progress. And he's slowly (laughs) learning metaphors. Uh, As as Quill would say, sort of. You mentioned Gamora. Let's talk about Gamora for a hot second here. Gamora's allegiance is not readily apparent at the jump. That's the point. But her ferocity is she is a force. Expert at manipulating Nebula and Ronin to position herself to go find the orb and ultimately to keep it away from her initially seeming allies. Expert at exploiting Quill's very apparent weakness, the uh, Star-Lord Jr. in his pants. You have the bearing of a man of honor, she says to him outside of the broker shop. Well, you know, I wouldn't say that. People say it about me all the time. It is painful now that, you know, she has worked her way into our hearts to go back to the the movie, rewatch it from the jump and see her just slicing branch after branch off of Groot's (laughs) person. That's distressing. But again, as we see, her reputation precedes her. Yeah, I know who you are. Rocket says anyone who's anyone knows who you are. And we see that that is true as the kiln lashes out against her, both because they've lost people to Ronan, as you noted earlier, And as Rocket tells us, and as we'll see from Drax, but also because she's the daughter of Thanos, who helpfully Rocket identifies for us as a genocidal maniac. Now, of course, Thanos, who we're going to talk about more in a minute, was in the Avengers, right? The Thanos, the other Loki, Chitauri chain. But we get a lot more crucial Thanos downloads in this film how feared he is how derided he is how vicious he is and a lot of that comes from Gamora this is smart plotting and storytelling because positioning Gamora as someone Mm -hmm. who is endangered in this setting makes us and Quill shift almost instantly from fearing her to worrying for her they're here to stop us from getting out Rocket says when Quill asks if the guards will protect her, they don't care what we do to each other inside. The movie is set in space, but as noted, these are not Asgardian gods. These characters are plucky or down on their luck or actively hunted. Before they're the ones who do the protecting, they are the ones who need the protection. And that is a crucial part of their hero origin story. It's not only that they're not the god of thunder or some... Yes. mighty being like that. They're not, it's, it's not even, they're not even Steve Rogers, right? The desire was always there to act with intention and that compassion that Erskine identified. They're scoundrels and they have to find the motivation to redirect their own lives. Now, Gamora does not necessarily want 
protecting. We have an agreement, she tells them after the kill and escape, but I would never be partners of the likes of you. Again, none of this teaming up is natural for them, except for maybe Rocket and Groot, but then again, Groot doesn't speak. They all have their wounds. They all have their histories. They all have their tragedies. I quibble. I quibble with that characterization. He says so much. It's all like tonal <laughs> inflection. It's not, he's not like, it, it, he's an easy yeah. person to be around. An easy being to be around is what I'm saying. Groot. This, yeah. all right, this won't surprise you to hear. Not, not to, not to redirect us. What's but that? you know what it makes me think of? Halo, my cat. Because he is, of course, just meowing. But I feel like I understand everything he says to me. I really do. The to- he's speaking to me. He's communicating. And the method of communication may not be traditional, but part of the bond that we have forged is that I can sense what he wants and needs. And in the moments when I can't, I feel like I have failed him spectacularly. That is so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, pal. (laughs) Gamora says to them, my father didn't stress diplomacy, she tells Quill on Nowhere. Thanos? He's not my father. And of course, we learn that Thanos killed her parents in front of her, tortured and mutilated her. Not a great guy. In later films across uh, the Guardians and Avengers franchise, we'll see that in his own really twisted way, Thanos loves Gamora so much that sacrificing her on Vormir is really the only way that he can get the Soul Stone. He believes he rescued her from the world, cleansed it, but he destroyed it and her life. And that's why she turns on Ronan, tried to take the orb for herself. We'll learn later that her work to be Thanos to the Stones predates this decision. But her journey in this film isn't just about Thanos and the Stones. It's about who she chooses to align with and why and, and what drives her and why. She told Quill that she'd never be his partner, but when he implores them all to fight Ronan and save Xandar, she says... I've lived most of my life surrounded by my enemies. I'll be grateful to die among my friends. Just a really inspiring and heartfelt moment all at once. And then, of course, Quill tells her that Yondu was the only family he had, and she says, meaning it fully, no, he wasn't. And then they dance. A little hip shake when the music kicks in. Love it. And finally, Ronan, Thanos, and Nebula are unholy trio here. Interesting intro for Ronan, bathing in the blood of his enemies, totally normal and chill, doing his best Trevor as the Mandarin impression with the, they call me terrorist, radical (laughs) zealot, but I obey the ancient laws of my people, the Kree talk. But what's the difference? He really, really means it. He is driven by hate in the quest for absolute unforgiving vengeance. Peace treaties mean nothing to him. Attempts at progress mean nothing to him. Xandar must go. It's that simple in his mind. And we can see from Quill's exchange with the broker on Xandar how people fear him, how just the utterance of his name leaves terror in its wake. He kills the other, who again was the intermediary between Loki and Thanos in the Avengers. Without any hesitation. Simply because he's annoying him by questioning him. And he does it. Not uh, on the side, uh, no subterfuge, right in front of Thanos. He is bold, fearless even, but that's the thing, right? Fear is what keeps you honest, keeps you on your edge. And this version of Ronan totally lacks it. He lacks our fear as well. How could we really fear him when we hear this from Thanos? The only matter I do not take seriously, boy. 
is you. Your politics bore me. Your demeanor is that of a pouty child. And apparently, you alienated my favorite daughter. Gamora Nebula is like, fuck! <laughs> it's a brutal beat it's for Nebula right there. beat for <laughs> Nebula. Damn it! She's right there. Now, of course, of course... <laughs> You know, Ronan, the accuser, is not long for the MCU, but he is responsible for an all-time heat chick. Yes, that was our agreement. Bring you the orb and you will destroy Xandar for me. However, now that I know it contains an infinity stone, I wonder what use I have for you. And when Korath is like, uh, you know, he's insane because, quote, Thanos is the most powerful being in the universe. Thank you for this little phase three setup so that we understand what a threat <laughs> Thanos will be. Ronan, yeah. who has taken the power stone in his hand and embedded it into the head of his Cosmi rod, says, not anymore. And then, again, this line reading is unbelievable. Thanos! I'm coming for you. It's incredible. He certainly comes for Xandar, obliterating the Nova Corps. They have that really cool, hey, we're all in it together, mesh net formed by their ships to catch the Dark Aster. Still crushed to death by Ronan in an instant, but proves ultimately unequal, not to the might of their army. But like so many villains, certainly like our good friend Tom, to the thing he didn't account for. Love, friendship, devotion. Gets him every Absolutely. time, Jay. He will ultimately prove to be, as you said, a, a blip in the MCU tapestry. Which is unfortunate, by the way. Let's keep some of these villains yeah. around. Yeah. Well, it's nice to see him and Captain Marvel, but the associates of his in the villain web here will prove Absolutely instrumental in the MCU moving forward. Nebula, surprisingly consequential figure moving forward, not only as a, a villain in the sisterly foil for Gamora, but obviously the deliverer of a reverse heel turn in Endgame where she racked up an astounding, astounding <laughs> amount of screen time. Love the... Thanks, Dad. Sounds fair. Thanks, bit that Dad. We get from her here. Like fair. I think that the, the, the quick digest of the deep strife in the Thanos Gamora Nebular trio really comes through. That tense bond, or the lack of a bond with Gamora, the bond that doesn't <laughs> always flower in a positive way. I hated you least. Nebula says, "Damning with faint praise." If ever we've heard it, and she is saying this as she is attempting. To be clear, yes. to murder Gamora. And we should not forget, she as we talk down the road about Nebula's redemptive journey, she pulls that trigger, okay? Gamora is out in the vacuum of space, and if not for Quill, would have flat out died. 100% dead. D-E-A-D dead. <laughs> and Nebula would not have been sad about it. She would have loved it. I think she would have had a little tinge of a twinge of remorse, I think. I honestly don't. I think this Gamora, like before (laughs) the torture and all the stuff and spending all the time in space with Tony, I really feel like this Gamora would have just been like, 
maybe much later down the road would have felt bad about it, but in the moment would have been like, that was fucking great. I killed, I finally killed her. And of course they have a rocky road ahead in volume two, some real death cage stuff for an ego, but amid actions, this hideous violence rooted this deep, there is hope as Nebula shows us in, in phase three, but resentment has to turn to remorse to spawn redemption. And even here amid really horrifying behavior for her there, we, we have some sympathy for Nebula because we understand that like Rocket, she is a product of someone else's whims. You see what he has turned me into, she says to Ronan of Thanos. She's been corrupted. She's been mutilated. Is it great that she raises her hand to, quote, destroy a thousand planets? <laughs> no. But like Rocket, again, she did not ask to become this thing. And she finds her way home eventually. Eventually. Thanos. Ultimately, the chief big bad of phase three in the Infinity Saga, as Gunn told Vulture's Kyle Buchanan in December 2014, the sanctuary sequence was for him the hardest to write because it was less about this movie than the movies to come. The need to lay that groundwork. Quote, I think this is really interesting. There's pressure with Thanos because you're setting up this gigantic character that in one way isn't really a part of your movie. His presence doesn't really serve being in Guardians, and having Thanos be in that scene was more helpful to the Marvel Universe than it was to Guardians of the Galaxy. I always wanted to have Thanos in there, but from a structural standpoint, you don't need him. So that's part of it. And then part of it is the fact that you're setting up this incredibly powerful character, but you don't want to belittle the actual antagonist of the film, which is Ronan. You don't want yes. him to seem like a big wussy. So how do you make that work? And of course, he's scary. It's really scary. Return to me empty-handed and I will bathe the starways in your blood. Man, this guy is crazy for the Infinity Stones. We spent time with the Tesseract, Space Stone, uh, Loki's Scepter, the Mind Stone, the Ether, the Reality Stone, before we get to this beautiful purple Power Stone here. And we even got the big picture Infinity Lesson so important from Odin in Dark World. But I gotta tell you, shouts to the Collector. <laughs> For the exposition yeah. and the Ronan Thanos stone exchange lets us know what the stakes are. Oh, my friends, before creation itself, there were six singularities. <laughs> then the universe exploded into existence and the remnants of these systems were forged into concentrated ingots. Infinity <laughs> stones. These stones, it seems, can only be brandished by beings of extraordinary strength. Important setup for later on in the movie. Observe. These carriers can mm -hmm. use the stone to mow down entire civilizations like wheat in a field. Amazing that they have wheat in space, or I guess like the collector probably has like a grain or grains of earth, grains of the galaxy somewhere in space. And of course, this all sets the stage, of course, for Thanos and the Gauntlet, Thanos and the Purge, Thanos snapping his fingers, but also for the wonder of our heroes banding together to match and try to undo Thanos' work for Tony's sacrifice and the shared power and purpose it took to facilitate this. And there's, of course, forecasting for later in the film, as I just mentioned, not just for phase three, quote, once for a moment, a group was able to share. Once for a moment, 
A group was able to share the energy amongst themselves, <laughs> but even they were quickly destroyed by it. Mm. A beautiful, a beyond compare. <laughs> <laughs> What a weirdo. Oh my God. Steve, when you send us the, the cut of this pod, can you can you say it that way to us? Here's the here's the cut. It's beautiful and beyond compare. Jason. Yeah. No one's blowing up moons. You just want to suck the joy out of everything. <sighs> well, how about this? How about the joy of a history lesson? How about you gather the masters of the mystic arts and head to the sanctum sanctorum of your choosing? Tell us everything we need to know about the Novacor, Xandar, the Cree, and Ronan the Accuser, Tough Hang. Tough Hang. Uh, kind of a better hang in the comics. Anyway, <laughs> space. The final frontier Tough is space. super... Super weird out there. I'll tell you that. I'll tell you how it is. It's Maybe. very strange in space. Guardians of the Galaxy, the film, pulls primarily from two comics arcs: Annihilation, and it's it's a which is a limited series with various tie-in issues, and its sequel, Annihilation Conquest, also a limited series with various tie-in issues. Now, the movie throws a lot at you. A lot of characters at you, a lot of concepts at you without a, much in the way of context. So I wanted to fill out some of your understanding about some of the players and some of the places in our movie through the lens of the events of Annihilation and Annihilation Conquest. If you happen to be flying through Xandarian spaceways and you see flashing lights in your rear heads-up display, that's probably the Nova Corps, Xandar's militarized space exploration wing. They are basically space cops, you know, like uh, think of them as sort of a version of the Green Lantern Corps, kind of. The Nova Corps members come from many, many worlds, including Earth. In the comics, Nova Corps members fly and fight under their own power using their Nova Corps uniforms. And these uniforms are tailored to the species-specific anatomy of the wearer, so we can generalize here. Uh, you've got a flight jacket up top with the kind of like stiff mandarin collar that comes right up under the chin. Shoulders are pointed. It looks like a thriller jacket giving like an overall triangular shape. And then you've got these pants that are tucked into the boots. Big gold belt. The color scheme is blue, gold trim and detailing. Gold, metal gold helmet with a red star on the crest. And these uniforms are specially designed to harness the Nova Force, a essentially limitless supply of energy that was discovered by the Xandarians long, 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 long ago. A tiny, tiny shard, a fraction, a mere drop of this energy is enough to allow an individual member of the Nova Corps to move through space, flying uh, on their own power, again, at very high speeds, to shoot energy beams from their hands, and to have increased durability, increased strength, do all the superhero stuff that the Nova Corps members are able to do. Now, the Corps has two prime directives, defend Xandar and protect the world mind. What is the world mind? I'll get to that in a second. The Corps has two prime directives, defend Xandar and protect the world mind. The Nova Force and indeed much of everything on Xandar is managed by the world mind. 
Here's a quote from Thoron Rule, a Zandarian politician from 1979's Fantastic Four 205. For more than 10,000 millennia, he says, we have stored the still-functioning brains of Zandarians within these endless rows of computer banks, all our history, all our science, all our knowledge. The world mind, then, is a sentient AI composed of the memories, the personalities, the emotions of deceased Zandarians, including deceased members of the Nova Corps, various ruling elites, politicians, and so on. The political, moral, and spiritual leader of the Zandarians, the world mind governs as a, quote, multiple mind democracy with the Nova Corps as its military and defense arm. Now, the Nova Corps helmets are tuned into the world mind, and they make use of its knowledge while on missions if the Corps needs more firepower, say, to deal with the threat that's just a little too powerful, the world mind raises their ability to use the Nova Force if they need advice. They ask the world mind. In Guardians, the movie, Ronan's attack fleet, uh, you may have noticed, was made up of countless fast-moving insectoid-like craft. Now, this is a reference to the Annihilation Wave in Annihilation, which was the main fleet of Annihilus, the big bad of the limited series. Annihilus is like this beetle-like insect creature of pure evil, pure hunger, who hails from the negative zone, a dimension made up of antimatter that was discovered by Reed Richards. Now, in Annihilation, the main universe, 616 universe, is expanding into the negative zone, and Annihilus refuses to brook that insult and decides, you know what, I'm going to kill everything in my universe and the 616 universe, and then I'm just going to reign over the nothing, and then I will be at peace. What a weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) The the Annihilation Wave is just this vast, vast swarm of powerful insects. They, They pilot insect ships. Each swarm army is led by a general that is a queen to Annihilus, and the destruction they lay, they wrought across the galaxy is total. They're like very, very powerful locusts. They laid waste to entire galaxies. In the prologue of Annihilation, the wave, despite the heroism of the Nova Corps and its human corps member, Richard Ryder, just absolutely shreds Xandar, destroys it. Ryder survives, but the Nova Corps is... Uh, totally wiped out, as is all living things on Xandar. And he, Richard awakes in the apocalyptic ruins of Xandar. Quote, the Xandarian cluster suffered near total destruction, a voice over his suit's communication system tells him. The population centers were vaporized. Support infrastructure was demolished. Defense core units were deprived of tactical support and exterminated. Now, this voice belongs to the world mind, and it guides Richard to it in order to save itself a self which encompasses, according to it, quote, everything that Xandarian culture has ever been, all its arts, sciences, history, technology, philosophy, end quote. And it contains, in addition to all of that, the bio-template of the Xandarian race. So, theoretically, it could recreate Xandar once again. So, it asks Richard to come to it and to save it and to allow the world mind to upload itself into Richard. Quote, you must take me to a place where I can hide and reconstitute my functions, where I can ascertain how I may best assist the galaxy in the fight against this threat and how I can best deploy Xandar's one great weapon. And that weapon is the Nova Force. Each member of the Nova Corps wields uh, one small shard of the Nova Force and taking the 
full force or anything like the full force is just very, very dangerous. Richard points out to the world mind, as they're kind of debating whether Richard should do this, that Garth and Saul, a, a, a previous member to take the full force, was driven to madness. And the world mind responds that since Richard will also be carrying the world mind, he'll have the support of, quote, the full cognitive resources of the world mind. And to that end, the world mind will also upgrade Richard's suit in order to better harness the awesome energies of the Nova Force, which, quote, you will only have to carry for a limited time. Psychological damage will be minimized, Richard. So calm down. And anyway, besides, we don't have any choice, he tells him. Now, the Annihilation Wave is here on Xandar, the world mind essentially says, and soon the insect marauders will destroy the last data center housing me, so let's get this on. Let's do this. And that's how Richard Ryder becomes Nova, the last hope of Xandar and of the Nova Corps itself. Any word on how Grogu is doing with the Nova Force these days? Is he, <laughs> <laughs> is he able to? It's, it is actually quite, it's, it's different in the sense that for some reason, the Nova Force is only, it is only localized around Xandar or if it's extra dimensional in, in origin, only Xandarians have figured out how to tap into it. So it's not like a force that binds the entire universe. Sorry, Yoda. Sorry, Grogu and Yoda. Ronan the Accuser uh, and the Kree. The Kree are one of the, let's call it three primary alien races of the Marvel comics, along with their rivals, the Skrulls. And then the Badoon. It's technically four with the Shi'ar. But the Badoon really aren't, aren't all that. Anyway, the Kree are a militaristic race of blue or pink-skinned humanoid aliens who have, over the centuries, pursued a largely imperialist agenda in colonizing the galaxy. They hail from their homeworld of Hala, once the capital of the Kree Empire, now destroyed. Much like the Xandarians, the Kree also entrusted their government to a supercomputer called the Supreme Intelligence, or Supremor, I guess if you're on, like, if you're real tight with the Supreme Intelligence, you can call him Supremor. <laughs> Supremor is an amalgamation of the Kree's greatest minds, much like the Xandarian world mind, except Supremor is like a 30-foot-tall, giant green, emerald green potato head with tentacle hair sprouting from its scalp, which lives in this giant vat of liquid. <laughs> He's really gross. Hot. Uh now, the Kree are, are most well-known for their long and brutal galaxy-spanning war against the Skrulls, the so-called Kree-Skrull War. We'll talk about that in our Captain Marvel pod, but I want us to have that context so we can discuss one of the greatest space fascists in Marvel history, Ronan the Accuser. Ronan the Accuser's <laughs> official title, when he's working, is Supreme Accuser of the Kree Empire. The Accusers are basically a one-stop shop. Military governor, judiciary, and law enforcement all in one. Judge, jury, and executioner. As Supreme Accuser, Ronan is the third highest ranking member of the Kree regime after Supremor and the Imperial Minister. Now, blue-skinned Kree, of which Ronan is, consider themselves racially pure, certainly in comparison to their pink-skinned Kree brethren, 
who became pink essentially because of interbreeding with other with other species. And so the blue-skinned Cree are traditionally part of the elite class, the ruling class of the Cree, and Ronan was born into a leading aristocratic family. As supreme accuser, Ronan was sent on only the most crucial and sensitive missions to administer justice and settle disputes across Cree territory. Now, occasionally, Ronan will show up somewhere like the moon or Earth and fight the Fantastic Four. And when it's pointed out to him that, hey, you're like judging people who are not on Cree territory, you are on Earth territory, he'll be like, well, wherever I am is Cree territory. He's really moving the goalposts with the whole uh, (laughs) judicial thing. Anyway, in earlier comics continuity, Ronan was a pretty strong opponent of, of species mixing with basically mixing uh, Cree genetic stock with outside races. He was against it. This brought him into conflict with the Supreme Intelligence, who felt that the Cree had hit an evolutionary dead end and pushed for a program of interbreeding with outside races, in particular humans. Many across the galaxy, including Supremo, have noted, seem to have a lot of uh, super-powered individuals among their population, so why not interbreed with them? Ronan didn't like this. He rebelled, overthrew the supreme intelligence, and briefly held power himself before then being overthrown and imprisoned. He was eventually reinstated as supreme accuser, and, and when we meet him in Annihilation, he's in exile, having been falsely accused of conspiring with the Skrulls against the Kree imperial government. They imprisoned him and then gave him his job back? Listen, it's, this is even worse I, than promoting Thunderbolt it's, Ross. I, listen, what, what I, are we doing, folks? The way the Cree do things, there's really no explaining it. <laughs> Boy. So all accusers carry. Uh, you might you might have wondered what is that sledgehammer that Ronan the accuser carries? All accusers carry that. Uh, they are called. This is a translation now. Okay, from the Cree language. But the English translation is Cosmi Rods. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, now, Ronan is amazing. gets the most powerful Cosmi Rod of all the Cosmi Rods. Yep. And it is, it is, it, <laughs> yep. it is quite a thing in comics anyway. It can reorganize atoms, it can disintegrate matter, it can make matter spontaneously change shape and change composition, it can fire energy beams, and of course, he hits stuff with it and stuff just falls apart. It's a very powerful melee weapon. When you say that he fires energy beams from his Cosmorod. He does do that. (laughs) He does it all the time. I'm sorry, continue. He does it all the time. I'm telling you, if you got a black light out, the galaxy would be covered with his cosmic. It would rod. look like the inside of the Milano. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about his buddy Korath? Korath was uh, born and raised on Hala, another blue-skinned Cree. As part of Project Pursuer, Korath, a genetic scientist, was working toward building super-powered Cree soldiers as every species in the galaxy is. Eventually, he began experimenting on himself, not with genetics, though, with cybernetics. Uh, Now, the average Kree is about twice as strong as the average human. Post-cybernetic implants, Korath was stronger than the average Kree, still about maybe two or three times as strong. He joined the Kree Star Force, which was kind of Kree super team, of which Ronin was also a member for a time. Uh, Now, during his run as a member of Star Force, the Kree was at... uh, 
war with the Shire, and at the peak of the fighting, the Shire detonated a negabomb, which is this horrifying antimatter weapon, and billions of Cree were killed. The Cree Empire just kind of fell apart, and the Victoria Shire took control, absorbed elements of the Cree Empire into itself, and that included the Star Force. But then, Korath tells Ronan during uh, Ronan's Annihilation tie-in, quote, once the new elite restored the Empire's autonomy, we were branded defectors. Tough beat for Korath, who then ended up wandering across the galaxy. And he happened to run into Ronan, who at the time was on the same planet that Korath was on because he was pursuing the person who had falsely testified against him at his treason trial. Now, the two exiles become allies, Ronan and Korath, along with Nova. Nova's right-hand man, Peter Quill, who I should add, if you're going to read Annihilation, looks vastly different during this time. First of all, like brunette, a brunette, number one. Two, he had implanted like cybernetic implants into himself. So he has like this robotic eye, which is <laughs> super weird. Anyway, Korath, Ronan, Nova, Peter Quill, Gamora, Drax, Thanos, Clerk the Super Scroll, Philavel, the new Quasar, and many, many more of these ragtag heroes wage a nearly hopeless war against Annihilus, and the ravenous Annihilation wave swarms. Now, Annihilation was important in returning, you know, these various marginal comics figures, like Mora, Peter Quill, Drax the Destroyer, to regular continuity. Annihilation Conquest, the sequel, is where those players, along with Similarly, marginal characters, Groot, Mantis, and Rocket Raccoon, and many others, uh, joined together, laying the groundwork for what would eventually be the Guardians of the Galaxy team um, that we are familiar with and that is depicted in this movie. Now, by the end of the Annihilation War, uh, the Skrull Empire was gone. Ronan, spoiler now, had overthrown the aristocratic house that was in charge of the Kree at that time and also killed Supremor, which tough beat for Supremor. And basically was ruling the Kree Empire on his own. So the foundations that had held up the traditional galactic political balance of power were just gone. And everybody was just kind of scrabbling to see what comes next. It was a very chaotic time. And then another threat arrived in the form of the techno-organic villains known as the Phalanx. Now, the Phalanx... Uh, if they basically, if they touch anything organic, it becomes infected with this techno-organic virus. Peter Quill, as part of the uh, fight against the phalanx, is put in charge of a team of prisoners, and they are tasked with going behind enemy lines to carry out a surgical strike on the phalanx. They call themselves the Dirty Half Dozen, and they include Bug. Bug is fun. A click-clack warrior with enhanced agility and the ability to communicate with other insect life forms. I should add, he's like a green-skinned guy with a really cute little uh, antenna, and he's basically a bug. Deathcry, a Shire with uh, near-indestructible claws and rage issues, basically a space wolverine. Uh, Mantis, who we know from Guardians of the Galaxy 2. The quote here from the person introducing her to Quill is incredible. <laughs> quote, a mid-range mentat who has manifested flashes of telekinesis, telepathy, precognition, and in one unfortunate instance, pyrokinesis. Also, she uh, she is called the Celestial Madonna because she believes that she's destined to give birth to the Messiah. She's a little off. Captain Universe, who wields a sentient form of energy called the Unipower, 
that might be more like the force. Rocket Raccoon, a tactical genius who it turns out not, isn't, doesn't just have an affinity for gadgets and weaponry, but um, Rocket Raccoon's instincts are right. Something like 99.76% of the time when he's just going with the flow, he's correct. Wild stuff for the tactical genius Rocket Raccoon. Oh, and then finally, voice. Impressive. Impressive, <laughs> Rocket. And then Groot, in all his glory, Groot, <laughs> who is a Flora Colossus and the self-proclaimed, which I don't know how they would know this because he just says, I am Groot, the self-proclaimed monarch of Planet X. Now, after Annihilation Conquest, in the wake of that, this story is a springboard for the modern Guardians of the Galaxy team, which forms in the wake of Annihilation Conquest. Self-proclaimed monarch. What a flex from our guy, Groot. It's pretty good. <laughs> Mal, asleep for the danger, awake for the nuggets, as per frickin' usual. So let's collect six of our favorite insights and observations from this film, like so many Infinity Stones. Lightning around, Sal, you go first. Number one. One egg to rule them all. The Guardians films are famed for their voluminous collection of Easter eggs, but Gunn has long teased that even amid those cartons of Jumbo XL shells, there is an ostrich-sized secret still waiting to be unearthed. The claim spawned a Ready Player One-esque collection of Marvel Gunters hunting for Halliday's, uh, excuse me, the Guardians, secret egg. And the director has long <laughs> interacted with the questers, debunking theories or offering percentage-based encouragement. And at long last, in 2020, this year, six years after the film's release, he gave the closest thing yet to thumbs-up confirmation. In April 25th, quote, ha-ha, amazing work, period, prayer hands emoji, quote tweet of a new Rockstars theory video. Now, you should watch the full New Rockstars video and or the condensed follow-up version of the video from April 28th that accounts for this reply. But here's a brief, very top-level summation of the theory that Eric Voss presented in his own words. Quote, The Guardians of the Galaxy Easter egg is a code hidden in the movie's location coordinates that tells us that Peter Quill's mother Meredith is actually a Marvel cosmic deity. Eternity... What? Infinity, maybe Lady Death, a space goddess who continues to speak to Peter through the movie's awesome mixed soundtrack. Now, again, that got the haha, amazing work, prayer hands emoji response after years of no, you're not there yet. Now, Voss credits numerous other members of the Marvel fandom on YouTube, Reddit, Discord, etc., for decoding the coordinate messages among them. This is mom's cancer for the Dark Aster. Meredith Quill X for nowhere, etc. And then goes on to explore a secondary layer of the theory that hinges on the soundtrack's role in messaging Meredith's reach to Peter. Of the three deity possibilities that Voss offers up, he seems, I think at least, to favor eternity. Sorry, Thanos. Uh, put, it, put it back in your pants for Lady Death here. I know. Calm down. You're going to have to calm down with that one. <laughs> Thanks to, among other factors, Peter's I See It Eternity line in Guardians Volume 2, as well as Eternity's role in the comics as the container for the galaxy. 
Number two, mugshot Easter eggs after the Nova Corps arrests Quill, Gamora, Rocket, and Groot were treated to, in essence, an annotated live-action mugshot for each character. And because this is a Guardians movie, the sequence features comic Easter eggs for each character. Among them, in addition to listing her enhancements, cybernetic skeleton, ocular and respiratory implants, enhanced neurological system, enhanced regeneration implant, Gamora's origin is listed as, quote, last survivor of the Zeroberry people. As we know from Thanos' history lessons in subsequent films, half of the Zeroberries survived his attack, as is his want. Next up, Rocket, or Subject 89P13. His origin is listed as Half-World, the planet from which he hails in the comics, and the planet on which robots genetically engineered animals such as our guy Rocket and his friend and lover Lila, the Otter, who's listed alongside Groot on his Nova rap sheet as an associate. His enhancements are listed as cybernetic skeletal structure, enhanced phalange and metacarpal bones, genetically augmented cerebral cortex, and his rap sheet also comes with a warning tendency to bite. Next, Groot, <laughs> whose species uh. is listed as a flora colossus and whose origin is listed as X, a nod to his comics homeworld Planet X, the branch world from which the flora colossi hail. Fun little detail that enhances the idea of Groot as a humanoid, he has fingerprints that pop on the scan. In addition to Rocket, Groot's other listed associate is Tibius Lark, who's not in the comics. In an Instagram comment in 2014, Gunn replied to an inquiry about Lark's identity by saying, I know who Tibius is, but he hasn't been introduced yet. He's a character who has to do with Groot's origin. Mm. End quote. Intriguing. And that brings us to Quill. His middle name, Jason, is listed here. It's also his middle name in the comics. And it's a nice reminder that in the comics, his dad is not Ego, as in Volume 2, but Jason of Spartax. Hysterically, they list his alias as Space Lord rather than Star Lord. <laughs> that kills me. <laughs> we also see here that Quill is, has a translator implant in his neck, given his history, a possible sex injury. But regardless... Handy while gallivanting about the galaxy. One of the crimes on Quill's rap sheet is, quote, illegal manipulation of Grimosian Duchess. Another sex story for Quill, but also a nod to the Grimosians of Thor's comics canon. Ah, Space Lord. What a guy. The Space Lord kills me. That's so funny. Number three, Peter's pop culture references. Quill is a lot of things, but above them all. He is a child of the 80s, and since he left Earth in 88, his pop culture references are often of the 80s, too, and when they're not of the 80s, they're still oldies. Among the gems in this film beyond the 70s, oldies on Peter's mixtape, Gunn confirmed on Twitter that Quill's ship, the Milano, is named for Alyssa Milano, Quill's quote, childhood crush. Quill also calls Groot giving tree which is an honestly amazing but also distressing reference to shell silverstein's 1964 classic the giving tree given the depiction of relationships in that story he attempts to break through gamora's shell by telling her about kevin bacon and footloose great <laughs> moment in the movie yeah. sticks and butts though his david hasselhoff nods are to come in the sequel he mentions here a few of his favorite pop culture outlaws. John Stamos, Bonnie and Clyde, Billy the Kid, and Gold Rocket Ranger Rick, a nod to the kids' nature magazine. I, I don't know about you, Jay. We were more of a highlights household, though. Well, you know, like, I liked highlights as well. Yeah, wonderful stuff. He name checks the Ninja Turtles. This brought me great joy. I was a big Ninja Turtles kid. He tricks Yondu with a troll. I wonder how he felt about world tour. 
<laughs> it's a cinematic endeavor. And he describes the Power Stone itself, of course, as having a, quote, real Ark of the Covenant Maltese Falcon vibe. Oh, Quill. Number four, the collector's collection. If mm. Tannelier Teven could put 80s references in glass cases, he probably would. We first glimpsed the collector's nowhere-based collection in Thor, the Dark World Stinger, and we get a longer look here among the most notable inclusions. Howard the Duck. Voiced by Seth Green, starring in The Stinger and spawning a slew of questions about another attempt at a Howard film. It's never going to happen, but you'll see him in a Squirrel Girl film, for sure. Mm. Cosmo the Space Dog. Love Cosmo the Space Dog. Amazing work from Cosmo in this movie. (laughs) Absolutely love, love, love Cosmo the Space Dog in the comics. The Soviet test pop turned telepath and nowhere's chief of security in the comics. I love Cosmo the Space Dog. I love it. (laughs) Marvel fans speculated in the film's wake that the golden cocoon in the collection might house Adam Warlock. And while Gunn acknowledged that the design was based on Warlock's comic history, the director introduced a different direct Guardians retconning version in Guardians to the golden sovereign housing pod that Aisha creates to hunt the Guardians. In addition to those comic nods, we see connections to prior MCU films, including a Chitauri soldier from Avengers those are everywhere. Like if you get a, if you get a, you know, you open every, every box of Panini has like f- 50 Chitauris in it. It's like, forget those. You can get those anywhere. You can get them near mint anywhere. It's not a big deal. Oh God. And a dark elf from Dark World. Those are pretty good though. Those getting harder and harder to find because so many of them were wiped out. Good get by the collector. And there are non-MCU nods too. The visible slugs are an homage to Gunn's film Slither. Number five, Son of Groot. Folks, this one hurts. While we delight, of course, in seeing baby Groot dance and sway in the film's closing moments, we have all had to accept that this is not our original Groot, who did in fact perish in his act of sacrifice. We know this because the writer and director of the movie has said so. Time and time again, on Twitter and various social media platforms, not always kindly. Here's a sample tweet from February 2018. Quote, the internet is like Groundhog Day every time I point out first Groot died. Baby Groot has a different personality, a different body, no memories of adult Groot, and adult Groot's sacrifice actually meant something. New round of news stories and collective gasping again and again. (gasps) I mean, he's wrong. That's fine. He's just wrong about this. Same voice actor, correct? Correct? I, Mr. Gunn? I will say, I quite enjoy the scientific community's response about sure. how it's really a clone, not a son. Yes. That's my read on it. I mean, I don't think it's the same, same Groot, but it's genetically the same exact Groot. It's not his son. And yes, he lost his memories, but it's still him. He still acts the same in the comics and later on. Number six. Cameos. Stan Lee mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. makes his signature cameo on Xandar and Rocket scorn for creeping on a younger woman. That's his granddaughter, Rocket. I don't know. I'm just kidding. But there is another <laughs> fun wrinkle at play here. The language on Groot's scope is scroll, indicating Lee may be playing a shapeshifter here. And Gunn has confirmed that Lee's catchphrase, Excelsior, which we hear him mutter in his Ultron cameo, is written in scroll here as a nod to the Marvel icon. Planet Morag's name is a nod to the comics character Morag, an early Kree leader. On Morag, we see Star-Lord dance with an equestrian-looking skeleton, perhaps a Corbinite. Shouts to Beta Ray Bill. Or a Chimelian. 
Laura Haddock, who plays Meredith Quill and who previously played the Bond circuit admirer who Cap made eyes at on the stairs in the first Avenger. More proof that Meredith is perhaps a Marvel deity. I love this. Nathan Fillion plays the monstrous inmate at Kiln who gets his nostril shredded by Groot. Lloyd Kaufman also appears as a prison inmate. Rob Zombie is part of the Ravager's crew and Gunn's dog. Dr. Wesley Von Spears appears as the hollow dog. That hollow isn't the only thing with Quill on Morag. The soldiers from Korath, who will, of course, return in Captain Marvel, are Sakaran, an MCU nod to Planet Hulk cannon that predates Thor Ragnarok. And the Temple Vault also features an Infinity Gem creation mural, which has Voss notes in the aforementioned New Rockstars video, shows death, infinity, eternity, and eternity sun entropy. On the matter of stones, the lesson from the collector doesn't just show anyone wielding the power stones. It shows Esson the Searcher, who is a celestial. One more setup for the Quill genealogy reveal in volume two. Mal, he says he's an a-hole, but he's not. And I'm quoting him here. 100% a dick. Do you believe him? I don't know that I believe anyone's 100% a dick, including today's would-be winners. This season, we're debating the winner of every episode of Binge on Marvel. Whosoever holds this hammer, if they be worthy, shall possess the power of Binge! Today's debate. Yeah. Groot versus Peter Quill. Before we begin, let's quickly refresh everyone on the ground rules. Coin flip determines who picks first. Mm-hmm. We get a 60-second portion to make our case, mm-hmm. then a 30-second rebuttal for each contestant. The binge mode audience, you find people out there will determine the winner. Okay, Steve, flip it. Flip it. Who's calling it? Ready heads. for this? Wait, heads. it's my turn to call it. <laughs> you better pick heads. I'm not going to pick heads. Okay. Because I believe... That it surely must be time for Tails. Is it Tails, Steve? It is, in fact, Tails. Hell yeah! Wow. Wow. Technology. Technology. Probability. Okay. I will go second. You go first. Yeah. Let's hear your opening statement, sir. Steve, are you going to do the time? I'm going to time, too. Just enjoy. I enjoy, enjoy being able to really track it. All right. I'm ready. Count yourself in, Jay. Yeah, 60 seconds. Two, three, go. Peter Quill, taken from a life on Earth, enjoyed adventures in space. What did he find at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy? Closure from the trauma and the pain of his past, losing his mother. He got a new mixtape. Got to read his mother's final words to him. He bonded with Gamora in a real emotionally adult way. Somehow became the leader of a team, a team of misfits. He discovered that he's half alien, was courageous enough to pick up the stone and strong enough to wield it. And he got to use his love of music and his knowledge of music, particular subset of music, to distract Ronan in a really fun and interesting way. And yeah, he helped save the galaxy as, again, the leader of a team. Pretty cool stuff for Peter Quill. Also, you see how cut? You see the abs? You see the... Hey, that's time. That's time. Did you see, like, the V cut? He had that V. 
Oh, wow. We're getting a visual demonstration. This is why we do this part on video. You never know what'll happen. Okay. Time for my opening statement. I can't wait. One, two, three, go. I would like to talk about Groot, my winner, the winner of this movie, and frankly, one of the winners of the MCU to date, if we're being honest. Breakout star of the film, dare I say, sensation? Think of that whole merch factor. What would our friend George Lucas say? Groot merch tells you all you need to know, Jason. People are obsessed with him. His bond with Rocket is... One of the heartbeats of the film, one of the most emotionally resonant and rewarding things, but Groot gives us everything, everything we're seeking, all of those lanes of experience, ferocity, handy in a fight, boy is he, tenderness, beauty, a a flower in his palm, light petals around him, bravery, loyalty, Mm. was ready to go help his friends immediately, and of course, most crucially of all, he sacrifices himself for the group. Quill can't do the things you said unless Groot saved and that's him. Time. He is Groot. That's time. Great, I had concluded. So that worked out well. <clears throat> I can't wait to hear you try to argue against Groot. Come on. Ready? Three, <laughs> two, one. I have nothing negative to say about Groot other than to say that you have picked a great glue person, a glue tree, we should say, a Shane Battier, not a star, but the person who makes all the little connections and things work. That said, you mentioned merch. All Groot's merch involves Rocket. He can't even sell his own merch, folks. The leader of this team is Peter Quill, selected by everyone, including Groot. Groot is very important, but let's not forget, he gets chopped down to a That's time. time. That's time. Time. Weird that you use your whole time to tell lies. What? (laughs) Strange. Okay. I'm ready. Again, two characters we love. You know, there have been some of these where we don't necessarily feel that way, but these these are just, these are two delights, really. Okay. I'm ready for my rebuttal. Yes. Three, two, one, go. Uh, You have nominated someone who forgot that he had a sexual partner aboard his spaceship. You are nominating someone who winds up arrested because he was too busy flirting to realize that he was about to get his ass absolutely handed to him by multiple people on the streets of Xandar, who got duped by Rocket into stealing a leg, needlessly transferring credits, who dropped an infinity stone because he was being a doofus, tossing it in the air like a hacky sack, who made a nice speech, yes, but needed Groot, my winner, to convince everyone to join. And that's and Rocket to craft a strategy. I have two words for that. Han Solo. Oh. Okay. I, ha- I have two words back for you then if you're going to go two words. Here they are. Star Prince. Or if you'd prefer, Space Lord. Your guy's a joke to the galaxy. Why did your guy select him to lead the team? He didn't. Quill nominated himself like the egomaniac why that did he is. They, why did he agree? <laughs> Why did Groot say, well, we got to save him, this joke? So that he could go be the doofus on the front line saying they got my dick message while other people did the real work. This is a sex positive (gasps) contest. I'm not going to besmirch Peter Quill for having an active love life. We don't know who Groot is pollinating, just letting his (laughs) pollen fly out into the universe. We've seen it. He's glowing ejaculate inside the aster. 
I mean, yeah, I didn't even get to that. Good Lord. <laughs> Clean up, Quill. It's disgusting. Well, listen, everybody thinks that the glowing stuff that Groot lets out mm-hmm. is fantastic until they realize that he is uh, ejaculating on them with pollen. Still lights the way, doesn't it? <laughs> right into our hearts. Okay, binge heads, we have made our cases. And now Mjolnir is in your hands. Head to our social channels at binge underscore mode on Twitter and Instagram, the binge mode Facebook group, of course. Cast your vote for whether Groot or Quill is the worthy winner. Well, friends, there's another name you might know us by. Binge mode. Just ask Steve Allman, Isaac Lee, and Zach Cram, our indispensable producers and researcher, and Daniel Chin, who provided such wonderful help for us on the research front for this episode. Thank you, Daniel. Remember, if you're looking for past seasons of binge mode, be it Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Weekly, they are available for you to listen to in full for free exclusively on Spotify. We hope you had as much fun as we did today that you were as excited yes. as we are to hop back into the Quinjet, explore the rest of the story, and that you'll join us again next time for our discussion of a slightly less cheerful, bullion film than this one, Avengers Age of Ultron. <laughs> Until then, remember, we are group. Come, my friends, allow me to show you some of my collection. Here we have the sex toys of Sakaar. Yes, a wide variety of them, as you can see. Beautiful. And now I will take you to Titan, the home of Thanos. Here are a collection of Thanos' shits after having a particularly large meal. Mm. <laughs> Beautiful. And oh here we have <laughs> the Red Skull's collection of shoes from Vormir, which he sadly could never oh. wear again. Wow. Because he has no feet. <laughs> Exquisite. <laughs> are those off-white Prestos? Yes, that's what they are. I got them on StockX. <laughs> I found them so beautiful and postmodern with the writing of what the laces are and the things, and this is the soul. But of course I cannot wear them because I only have mist for a lower body. It causes me extreme pain. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>